you can please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, and we are um, plodding through this Gospel. We are in chapter 10. Uh, as I was sitting here earlier, Karen and I, we were singing a song, and she turns to me and looks out the window behind me and says, is that crime scene tape? Um, it's not, actually. It is yellow tape, but it's not a crime scene, just so you know. Um, something froze, and it, the pipe, pipe froze and exploded, and they had to fix it. So, But, you know, that would be cool, sort of, if we had crime scene. People were pretty rugged, and but we're not. So, so we're in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 10. We're just going to look at this short story here. Sometimes I think things are really funny, and no one else does. Are you guys okay? With All right. So... Let's move on. <laughs> it was funny right there in that front row, right there. There's a lot, but not up here. Let's get back to what the Bible says. <laughs> so we're in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 10. We're going to look at this third prediction as Jesus uh, predicts his coming suffering, death, and resurrection. As we celebrated Christmas last week, uh, we celebrated uh, the birth of Christ, his incarnation, uh, the God uh, the eternal Son of God taking on flesh, being born of a being born a baby. And so, a proper understanding of Christ's birth, we only can really understand it when we ha- see it in light of His death and resurrection. Separating His His life in a way that you don't see His death and resurrection, you only see His birth. That is not Jesus Christ of the Bible. To talk about His birth. We have to talk about his death. We have to talk about his resurrection because that is where the promise is. So as we look at this, let me read. I'll begin reading at verse 32, and I'll just read through verse 34. It says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. He's talking about the 12 disciples with him. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of God will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So as Jesus now is making his way more prominently to Jerusalem, he has the disciples around him, and there's there's also a crowd. And these two groups of people have very different reactions to Jesus. The disciples are amazed, and the crowd is afraid. And you think, why were the disciples amazed? They've seen Jesus do miracles. They've seen him confront people with truth. They've They've seen people humbled in front of him that bow down, and they are amazed. It's not that he's a speedwalker. It's not that he has a brisk pace. They're amazed because Jesus is going somewhere with determination, and they're amazed at what he's going to do. There's also a group of just onlookers who just like drama. This is the crowd who see him, and they're afraid. And they're afraid because it's said in John chapter 9 that If you confess Jesus Christ as Lord, you are not allowed in the synagogue, ever. So they were afraid because they're watching Jesus and the 12 disciples. They're going towards Jerusalem. And these onlookers, 
They're just interested in the drama of what's happening. There's no commitment to Jesus. There's no devotion. They just like drama, like passing a car accident. Something in us that likes drama. That's this other group. And Jesus says, it says, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen. So in private, Jesus tells the 12 disciples. This is the third prediction uh, that Jesus has of his coming, suffering, death, and resurrection. It's in chapter 8, it's in chapter 9, and it's here in chapter 10. In this one, we have a little bit, we have a few more details. It's going to happen in Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected by the Jews and the Gentiles. He will be condemned to death. This will be a legal action. The justice system of the time will be involved. He'll be mocked, spit upon, and flogged. And then it says, after three days, he will rise. All three predictions uh, that Jesus gives of his suffering and death include his resurrection. So why is the suffering and death and the resurrection of Jesus so significant? If you read any of Paul's letters in the New Testament, you see that it continually comes up in Paul's writings that he is about the gospel. He is about the cross of Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians that, 1 Corinthians 2, it says, uh, Paul decided to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. He decided to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. It was the core of Paul's mission. More than that, it was the core of Jesus' mission. You cannot say that Jesus was a good teacher and leave it at that. With that view, you are really inconsistent as you look at the Bible. The de suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it is what everything hinges on in the Christian faith. You cannot take that out. So in this, we're going to look at a few things about his suffering, death, and resurrection. We're going to look at how it is um, certain and central to his mission, how it is necessary, and how it is done out of love. His, his prediction of his coming, death and resurrection, was certain. He did not leave any doubt what he must do. It was not a general forecast of something's coming. He was telling his disciples, this is exactly what is coming. He will suffer and he will die. His work of, in suffering and death and rising again is a certainty. And it was central to his mission. Uh, he would not be the Messiah without it. He would merely be a good teacher, except the fact that he is the eternal Son of God. Jesus' mission throughout the Bible was seen. We see it here in chapter 10, verse 45, that he's, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He was born to die. He was born to live a perfect life, the life we cannot live, and he was born to die the death that we deserve. And he exchanged those for us. The Old Testament message was one of sacrifice. As you read through the Old Testament, from the beginning, you see that a bloody sacrifice was a significant thing in the Old Testament. It begins in Genesis chapter 4 where it tells of Cain and Abel, and Abel's bloody sacrifice being received. And then there are altars being built. Animals were killed long before the Ten Commandments were given. Then in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, sacrifices were standardized as part of devotion to God. This was a bloody, bloody sacrifice. 
These continued without interruption until the death of Christ, but more than that, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Because then there was no other place that you could have your bloody sacrifices. They were a significant part of the Jewish religious system. So why were these bloody acts so significant? They were a symbol of what is to come. They were a shadow of the reality that has come in Jesus. It's also to convince people. Leviticus 17.11 says that the life was in the blood. Hebrews 9.22 says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. This is the understanding of atonement, of a bloody sacrifice. And it was necessary. So it was central to Jesus' mission. He came and he was born and he lived a life that was pointing to his suffering and death. There is no other way around that. And it's so vital that you cannot take that out of Christianity. You have nothing if you take that out. Nothing. You have the same religion that every religious leader since the beginning of time has promoted. Follow my teaching and your life will be better. When Jesus comes in his certainty and necessity in his death and resurrection, he does not come as a good teacher. He comes as the ultimate sacrifice that fulfills the sacrifices in the Old Testament. That he is the one sacrifice that actually accomplishes something. It's not the sacrifice of the bull or the goat in the Old Testament that pointed to something. Jesus' sacrifice actually accomplished something. It was necessary. There was no other way around it. Throughout the Bible, God has required sacrifices. It was a necessary thing. This word atonement means has really two meanings that it carries with it. The understanding of ransom and the understanding of cleansing. To make an atonement for sin. To make a payment for people, a ransom. The book of Leviticus, in chapter 1, it talks about this, uh, the understanding of a sacrifice. Chapter 1, verse 3, it says, If this offering is a burnt offering offered from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then they shall kill the bull before the Lord. And the, the blood of the bull was then splattered on the wall of the, temp, of, of the tent. Uh, imagine this. We live in a pretty clean society. If there's blood running somewhere, we, what do we, we run from it. We get something that can clean it. We just stay away from it. You obviously tell your kids to stay away from it. Uh, we like clean things. Hand sanitizer is everywhere. It's actually right there. It is everywhere. We live in a clean society. This was a culture that understood messy, bloody things. We want things to look clean and neat, and we want them to be in its proper place. And that's why your pantries are orderly, your closets are orderly, some of them. We like neat and tidy. This culture was dramatically different. This was the part of their regular ritual that they did. You would get a bull from the herd. 
a common bowl, the thing that stuck out was that it was without blemish. It was perfect. And you take it over to the priest, and you'd show the priest, this is my bowl without blemish. And then it says, he shall put his, lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. So you have this perfect, innocent bowl. And you, if you were a Jewish person in the Old Testament, you would put your hand on this bowl. You were symbolizing that you needed this atonement. You needed this to do something for you. So you would put your hand on this perfect animal without blemish. And what happened? They would slit its throat. This was an intimate, also violent thing that happened. That bull was taking your place. It was making a payment. It was symbolizing something that you could not do by being a good law-abiding person. There was something in the sacrifice of the blood offering that you could not do. And that's true today. There's something in the sacrifice of Jesus that you cannot do. Following the law does not help. It is having this intimate relationship with one who is perfect and innocent, who is standing in your place, and who is making the ultimate sacrifice for you. This symbolized peace with God because this worthy sacrifice was for your sin. Peace is not gained by good living or honesty or morality. Uh, we receive the benefits of that innocent sacrifice. That's what we, we receive. And that innocent sacrifice is Jesus. There's nothing else who fulfills that. No one else in the world fulfills that. Uh, I was reading a lot about Jewish uh, rituals and traditions in the Old Testament and then present day and how they, how they practice their religion. And one writer, present day writer, was talking about the idea of righteousness where we read in the Bible that Jesus is the one who is righteous and we receive his righteousness by faith alone. And this Jewish writer writes about the righteousness and understanding the Jewish worldview and what his righteousness means. It says it means that after you sin, you get back up again, repent, and try again. You keep on trying. That is being righteous. That's the understanding of righteousness that the Jews had. You sin, repent, you get back up, and you try harder. What Jesus has fulfilled is that he knows us trying harder isn't going to accomplish anything because we are so self-centered, what happens then is we become prideful about trying harder. And we say, you know what, I'm really a better person because I'm trying harder. And, well, who are you better than? Well, I'm probably better than you because I see all the mess-ups you make and you don't try harder. The understanding of righteousness in the Bible is something you always receive. It is not something you can gain, you can work for. Romans 5, 1 and 2, which is our assurance of pardon that you heard. Let me read it again. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We receive God's righteousness. 
We are justified. We receive that from God. We do not work for that. We do not earn that. We receive it. And then we live out of that. Out of a proper understanding of Christ's work. There are a lot of people, many of you might be here, who have a misunderstanding of atonement, of the work of Jesus. And there are two categories you'll probably fall into. Uh, One, you have a high view of man. Or two, you have a really low view of God. Uh, No matter who you are in this room, we all deal with those and and sin and have uh, misguided ideas. But if we have a proper view of man, we'll understand that we're sinful, that we need to be transformed. We need something outside of us to change us. We can't do it ourselves. We can't earn God's righteousness. And then to understand we really have a low view of God, which means we think, you know, I'm really, I'm a pretty good person. God really can't be that holy. No one can understand that. So then we begin to lower God in his holiness. Really what we're doing is we're trying to change the character of God so we feel better about ourselves. So we feel like we really don't need a bloody, intimate atonement. But the Bible clearly lays it out. That is exactly what you and I need. There's no difference. I am no different than you. I need the same thing you do. I need a sacrifice for my sin that will make me right in the presence of God. It will not be done by reading more books. It will not be done by more knowledge of the Bible. It won't be done by having close relationships with people. It is only done by the finished and perfect work of Christ. So as we celebrate the birth of Christ, we also, at the same time, celebrate his death and resurrection. Because that's the promise we hold on to. This suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ, it was also done out of love. John 4, 1 John 4.10 said, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Romans 5.8, God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were undeserving, he died for us. And this is a life-changing substitution, that he died on our behalf. And making that substitution, it is transformative. Now, on a much smaller level, we, we understand that. When you love someone who is very healthy in their life, uh, they can return your love. And you have a good relationship. You still confront each other and sin against each other and repent. And that's just a, a cycle of relationship. But there's an understanding of I'm going to care for you and then you care for me. Uh, But if you ever love someone who is so broken, so needy, they can't return anything for you. They can't do anything for you. And I'm hoping you have those people in your life. Because the way you love them is substitutionary. You are giving them something to help transform them. You give them your time. You give them your energy. You give them things of yours. You substitute those and give them to them, hopefully, to help them in your life. Now, that's, a, that's this level of substitutionary. And what can quickly happen in those relationships is we become codependent, and then we become 
very selfish because we look at that person and say, well, I've done all this for you. What have you done? And then we become destructive. So that's this level of relationships. What Jesus Christ has done is substitutionary, but it is this level. It is nothing you could ever do in return for him. It is his perfect sacrifice and perfect atonement for you. Life-changing love is when you substitute your own for someone else's well-being. So what Christ has done is he has substituted his own, all that he had, to be the sacrifice for you and for me and to set us free. The Bible points that the sacrifice of Jesus is what sets us free and gives us peace. It's not trying harder. It's not working harder. It's not being a good moral person. It's not having perfect church attendance. It is understanding that Christ is the one who is perfect. And so we cling to him and nothing else. We don't hold on to our own pride and good deeds thinking they're going to do anything for us. Every other religious leader lives to be an example. Uh, If you have that view of Jesus that he's just an example for you to follow, you've missed the point of the gospel. You've missed the point of the good news because you cannot follow his example. What you need to do is rest in his finished work and then you can see the joy and the peace of living out of that. Jesus' mission was to die as the righteous sacrifice for sin. His birth always points to his death and so points to our new birth. You are only born again. You only have a new birth when someone else has done that for you. And that someone else is Jesus. So as we celebrate his birth, this morning we celebrate in communion his death. And with that, we also celebrate his resurrection. Because he says he will not eat this meal until we are united with him. So as a church, as we end this year, 2013, as we begin another year, 2014, uh, no tricks involved, uh, I think this time of year what many of us try to do is make resolutions. How many have already made them? We have one, two people. Okay, the rest of us are a little lazy. <laughs> no, just kidding. But what happens when we make these r- resolutions is we begin to focus on these are things I will do. I want to be much better at this. I want to learn this. They're all really good things. But what if we as people said what Paul said and said my resolution is, is to declare nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That is the only thing I will declare for you. And I will continually remind you of the gospel. What would happen if that was our one resolution? if you're like me, if you have any more than three, you never get them done. You always forget them. And then come about February, you feel guilty. It's always, me, it's mid-February. I think I'm going to read this book, and I get to mid-February. You can look at my bookshelf, numerous books. Mid-February, that's when I stopped. Just get tired. But as a church, what if we were people that said, I will declare among you Christ and him crucified? Because that is the core of our religion. 
That is the thing that drives us, that sets us free. And so this morning, as we prepare to take communion, please listen from the Gospel of Mark. This is the words that Jesus is explaining about what this meal means. Chapter 14, it says, as they were eating, he took bread and after he blessed it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he also took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is a table of promise. This is a table that looks back at history. This is a table that understands the present. This is a table that promises the future. And all of those promises are yes and amen in Jesus. So when Jesus took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Jesus is sinless. And then he took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for many. Drink of it, all of you. This is a table for anyone who can say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as, the, uh, as my Savior who has forgiven my sin. This table is for you. We also need to be aware that in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians, it talks about warnings, uh, taking of communion without discerning the body of Christ. And we take those seriously. So I would say, if you're here today and you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for your sins, and and you, you don't have faith in that, I would ask that you just stay seated. There are some prayers you can read, and I ask as you pursue truth, and try to understand what life is about, that you would join us again. I ask that you would read the Gospel of Mark and see what Jesus says about himself. But also say, if you're here this morning, and you have faith in Christ, but you hold on to your sin more than you hold on to Jesus, I would ask that you let this pass before you. And you take time and you repent of your sin. And find someone who can pray for you and help you so that you can understand how the completed work of Christ transforms you. If you are a young child this morning and you have not professed your faith, we ask that you do come forward with your family, but we ask that you allow us to pray for you uh, because you might not understand what these elements mean. So this morning, if you are helping with communion, if you'd please come forward. The other thing I'll remind you is we have red wine and we have white grape juice. So just be aware of that as you come forward. The way we take communion here is we begin at the back row and we uh, come forward on the outside aisles and then you can return to your seat through the inside aisle. Uh, You are free to take of the elements whenever you are seated. Remember, red grape juice, uh, no, red wine, (laughs) do not do what I say. Red wine and white grape juice. Also, if you, are, if you have a gluten allergy, uh, the bread that's cut on the bottom is gluten-free. So it's with great joy uh, this morning that I invite you to come partake of the Lord's Supper.
celebrate the good news of the gospel this morning. And one aspect of the good news is that we serve a God who looks only forward. Through the blood of Christ, there is no looking back. There is only a future, and that future lasts, lasts and lasts in the loving arms of our Savior. And we look forward to that as we look forward to a new year. I pray that you are all able to experience heaven in this life in a new way, in a profound way, through the blood and the love of Jesus Christ. Once again, as you're able, let's stand together and sing. Second birth, hark the herald 
you go out this week that you would understand his mercy, you would understand the scent nature of the good news, and you would be a light in this world. Please receive the word of the Lord. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, may the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.